0: Hello, this is Ellie Kushner, and you're listening to Dancewell Podcast. When I was a young student of ballet, I learned that several of the stars I admired used cocaine when they performed. It was a window into a world I thought I knew, and when I looked through that window, I saw other surprises too. Ballet was a world of profound discipline and hard work, yes, but it was also rife with substance abuse sexual scandal, and disordered eating. When I studied dance science, I was surprised to see that addiction and substance use was rarely addressed in the literature. So last year, I was excited to learn that Dr. Antonio Okana would be presenting his research on addiction at the all-virtual annual conference of the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science. And I'm grateful that we're able to share his work here on DanceWell podcast as well. Dr. Antonio Okana is a physician who listens. He sits at the crossroads of community medicine, addiction medicine, and mental health. He received an MSc in clinical nutrition and an MD from University of Toronto in 1991 and completed his family medicine residency at University of Calgary in 1993 and a fellowship in addiction medicine at the University of British Columbia in 2004. Dr. Okana is a specialist in addiction medicine, qualified to practice in both Canada and the US. He has 25 years of experience assessing and managing patients with complex mental health conditions, including atypical depression, eating disorders, chronic pain and fatigue syndromes, addiction to cocaine, methamphetamines, opiates, and benzodiazepines, as well as compulsive behaviors such as gambling, gaming, and internet disorders. His latest publication on adolescent cannabis use disorder was published in the British Columbia Medical Journal. Dr. O'Connor founded the North Shore ADHD Clinic in 2007, and he is also a digital health innovator and entrepreneur as the CEO and founder of Epiphany 360. Finally, Antonio espouses a strong belief in work-life balance he is the father of two teenage daughters and an avid cyclist. He currently lives in Los Angeles, California, and can be found riding the twisty roads in the Malibu Hills. And now, without further ado, I give you episode 83 Addiction and Dance. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, attrition, life coach, dance, and performance. Psychological and today, you are in for a Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hi, Antonio. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Hi, Ellie. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Um, so I first learned about your work from your beloved Astrid, who is my colleague. Um, and then I learned more about what you're doing in the I Adams lecture that you gave for our recent conference. Um, so we'll be referring to that. But um, of course, not all of our audience has heard that. So we want to make sure that we're filling them in on those gaps. Um, And I want to start by just covering general addiction, uh, not specific yet to dancers, and just ask you to sort of define and clarify what addiction is.
1: So anything that is addictive uh, increases your dopamine circuit voltage. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do it all the time. Uh, we have a cup of tea, we we go for a run, we socialize with our friends, um, and the addiction comes, it has two parts to it. It's compulsively seeking, in this case, it could be a substance or a behavior, and doing that despite negative consequences. So, for example, there's nothing wrong with having a gin and tonic after a long day, um, but if you, if you continue, you're compulsively using a bottle of gin and tonic uh, despite the fact that your wife has now left you or your, or your dance career is in tatters, then it's an addiction. So it has compulsive use despite negative consequences. And the bigger the negative consequences, the worse the addiction because it's saying this is how far I will go to get what I want. These consequences uh, have befallen me, and I don't care. I still want my drugs.
0: You mentioned in your, um, I learned from you in your talk, that the negative consequences have to show up in um, like two or more components of your life. So personal life, financial life, what other? Yeah, I think,
1: yeah, it's, it's just a metric that we all agree to, in the psychiatric addiction world that it's not just in one domain of your life. Um, the, the trouble, the negative consequences needs to be, it needs to have crossed a number of boundaries. So yeah, could be your health, could be your work, could be your academic, could be your relationship. It's two or more.
0: And one thing I think, um, it's interesting, you you were just talking about how it's, like, it's okay to use these dopamine enhancers to cope, right? So we go for a run to clear our head, or like you said, we have a gin and tonic to unwind, or even, um, yeah, eating cake to feel soothed, right? But it does seem like some dopani- dopamine enhancers are more categorically problematic, like um, purging, right? Like, that's probably not doesn't can you purge a little bit and that's okay, you know the way you can eat some cake to right. feel better and that's okay, right. right, right.
1: And so that's because purging has zero um, coping. It has zero status as a coping tool. Purging is never okay. It's like a little bit of cocaine. No, as soon as you have more. As soon as you use cocaine ever as a way of coping, it is by definition um, it is by definition uh, compulsive use. As soon as you purge at all, ever, as a way of coping, it is already compulsive use because there's no uh, acceptable amount of cocaine or there's no acceptable amount of
0: purging. Is that a socially defined category? Because... Like, if we were hiking in Colombia, like, a little bit of coca might not be considered automatically a bad thing.
1: Right, right. And I, I, I think you're right that there's a time and a place, there's culture, there's agreed-upon social norms. And, you know, you could go back to the ancient Greeks, and, and they might have mm-hmm. purged, you know, after a big feast. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think, you know, in our current medical scenario, if you were to come in and say, I purge, you know, once a month, is that okay? I would say not in this day and age, and especially not if you're a dancer. Um, and, and part of that is just the riskiness of it, right? right. It's, it's This is a habit that will follow you doggedly. You can't use a little bit of methamphetamine.
0: (laughs) Right. I always said, you know, like, if I felt like I could smoke a cigarette once a month at a party, I would go for it. But I just don't think I would do that. So I'm going to avoid it altogether.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think to be
0: fair, you're right. There probably is. A time,
1: a place, and a social agreed upon amount of coca that you could use or of purging that you might do. But in this day and age we're just gonna say we have a zero tolerance.
0: Mm-hmm. There's
1: there's no there's no healthy amount of it that we could say, oh that's okay.
0: And um, some of the other things that you listed that people can be addicted to are, you know, gaming and shopping. And, oh, I, I was really struck by creating chaos. Um, yeah. You that. Uh, is there anything that can't be addictive or, <laughs> you know? Um,
1: well, anything that raises dopamine can be addictive. And creating chaos raises dopamine, especially if you're good at withstanding the chaos. People who can't withstand chaos don't create it. But there's some people who love chaos, and they're very good at creating it because they're comfortable in that position.
0: Um, Speaking of people who can handle drama, let's talk about dance. Um, (laughs) So your talk for iAdams was specifically about addiction in ballet. And as we launch into this, where we're going to start talking about dancers. I just want to be clear about that because I think, you know, we have a, a a concerning issue in dance science where sometimes we study ballet a lot and then we extrapolate out about the whole of dance population. And, um, yes. you know, yes. but ballet yes. is just so, it's a very unique and specific and relatively consistent environment. I mean, the, the ballet environment in Russia is not that different than in China, than in the U.S. Um, And, you know, unlike physiological things, when we start talking about mental health and addiction, the culture in which dance happens is so, so specific and important. Um, So I just want to clarify to listeners that we are aware that there is that distinction. Um, From the data, what do we know about mental health generally and addiction, particularly in ballet?
1: Well, I think it's exactly like you say. You know, we have these words that we use as conventions so that we think we're all talking about the same thing. But, you know, you have to go right to the person and their scenario to really be sure you're talking about the same thing. So, in general, uh, ballet dancers are a little bit more detail-oriented and obsessive than, say, hip-hop dancers. And in general, you might say, you might agree that, you know, old school Russian ballet teachers are a little bit more um, aggressive and harsh than, let's say, Nouveau California ballet teachers. And so you'd be right to say the devil is in the details. It depends. But if we were going to talk, you know, in general terms that we would all generally agree ballet is one of those forms of dance that is the most obsessive, the most detail-oriented, the most uh, demanding in terms of, you know, let's just say, let's not say demanding, it's, it's detail-oriented. And so the kind of people that it attracts are anxious, obsessive, and detail-oriented. And, and that's good, that's, we like it that way, but in any scenario, whether you're talking about Uh, expert ballet dancer or a jet fighter there are lines that you start to cross when you say yeah this isn't this isn't okay anymore so for example when you're so obsessed about getting into the company that you do three workouts a day and then you injure your Achilles tendon but you don't stop training because you're so obsessed you know with your with your art and, and and you're so obsessed that you want to get into this company, that you continue to exercise despite negative consequences. Now you see that we've crossed a couple lines. And so it is categorically um, situational. There's no two situations that are exactly like, that's why they pay people to, you know, discern. Is this really a compulsive exercise addiction? Is this really a you know eating disorder? Um, is this really an addiction? And, and so I think that you know plenty of people who've crossed those lines, and some of them are looking for help, and some of them haven't yet decided to look for help. But you both know that there's something going on that needs to be addressed.
0: And what are the general rates of addiction um you were you had some figures for ballet and also for contemporary dance. I don't know that we have anything outside of those two forms, but yeah, what, what are the numbers and figures like
1: uh well, I don't have them on the tip of my tongue um but approximately um let's let's say. Uh, ballet dancers get injured more. Ballet dancers have a double or triple the amount of eating disorders than the general public. Ballet dancers have more eating disorders than contemporary dancers, but contemporary dancers have more addictions and bulimia than uh, so. Ballet dancers have more anxiety-related disorders and contemporary dancers have more addiction-related disorders. And of course, you know, there are subtleties, but as a group, you know, ballet dancers and contemporary dancers, you know, have some general differences and may probably show up in the rates of mental health challenges, in the rates of injuries, in the rates of addictions, um... So, yeah, in broad, in broad strokes, you could say ballet dancers have the highest rate of mental illness, addiction, uh, eating disorders, and uh, exercise-induced injuries of any, of any sport. Like, for example, ballet dancers have twice as many sports-related injuries as hockey players Hockey players who purposely go around
0: hitting each other. We usually have all of our teeth, so we have that going for us. <laughs> the, the nature of the injuries are less cosmetically damaging.
1: <laughs> yes, but the amount of injuries is higher than soccer players, track and field. It's higher than, than martial arts, and it's double hockey players. So you know that stands out as yeah. being a kind of unusual statistic.
0: Um, one of the things, though, that I thought when when you included, when you were talking about addiction um, and addiction rates is that, you know, smoking is included in that. And yep. so let's dive into that for a bit because I was curious, like, if we took smoking out, how that might change some of those rates, um, you know, I yeah, don't you're think right, a lot of running right. athletes smoke as much as dancers. Um, no,
1: You're a hundred percent right.
0: Um, but smoking is, you know, not to be, not to be taken lightly. And I have a couple questions about it. I mean, one, I wonder if, and I don't know that you have the statistics here, but I wonder if dancers are smoking less. My perception is that they are. You mentioned a Croatian study where dancers were smoking a pack a day. And I, see a lot less smoking tobacco cigarettes, um, among dancers these days. Um, however, I remember in graduate school, we were having a lecture about periodization, which is, you know, phasal, um, training in order to maximize performance. And, you know, it's very involved and systematic. And one of my colleagues who is a ballet dancer raised her hand and she said, do you think that maybe our efforts would just be better spent trying to get dancers to quit smoking than thinking about all of this? <laughs> and, you know, um, you mentioned also how important it could be to really invest some, some resources in smoking cessation for dancers. Do you want to just say a little more about that? Cause you didn't talk about it too much, but I bet you have more to say.
1: Well, I think you're quite right. Um, and I think well, for starters, if you took, So, smoking is one of, if not the most common addiction in dancers, period. And you can probably surmise why. And if we took smoking out of the statistics, would ballet dancers have as much addiction as other um, dancers or other uh, sports? No, because that's their major addiction. You know, there's probably, you know, a handful of cocaine using uh, maybe a few Adderall addicted, um, but mostly they're smoking and eating disorders. So, yes. And then if you look at Croatia and look at Canada, yeah, they probably smoke more in Croatia. Right.
0: And
1: then if you look at Croatia now versus when that study was done or, or United States now versus 10 years ago, yes, people, even dancers are smoking less. So, all of those trends are true
0: um, and i you we keep sort of mentioning eating disorders, so let's actually talk a little bit more about that right now. Um, you said in your talk, eating disorders are a form of addiction, and I was that really resonated with me, and that might be something that's really well known in your field. but I feel like um there's this Idea surrounding dancers that dancers develop eating disorders because they want to be thin because it's an aesthetic form and we wear these tight-fitting clothes and we're being lifted and we're in front of mirrors. And yes, I think all of that, of course, contributes to it. But uh, in the past few years, I've been starting to think more about how, yeah, dancers treat eating disorders like, you know, addictive substances. Um, And I think a lot of dancers you know, have a hard time processing negative emotions, we are like trained to just, you know, smile and push through it, and be positive and say yes. And, you know, all of that. But of course, we have a whole spectrum of complex emotions, like any other person, and there's not a lot of time to sort of um, investigate the negative ones. And I feel like that often um, contributes to eating disorders. And when I say this, to friends or, you know, people I work with, that, that often resonates for them as well. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about how, from a psychiatrist's perspective, eating disorder is an addiction?
1: Okay, so for starters, that's not necessarily well-known in my field. That's just something that I've learned because I have um, experience in, in both eating disorders and addiction. And when you do the, the math, the molecules are exactly the same. It's just a different way of coping. So for example, uh, anorexia, they get addicted to the feeling of starvation. So starvation raises dopamine and they get addicted to that. And they like that feeling. Um, and, and bulimia, it's the purging that raises dopamine and you can get addicted to that because it's a rush. You know, there's a certain physiological crisis going on in your body when the, when the food is going in the wrong direction. And, you know, the fact that you, you're now used to that and you're actually seeking that is a bit weird, but it obviously works for you. Like you said, because you need to be thin, you're in front of mirrors, people are judging you. So the fact is, yes. They are uh, two sides of the same coin. You can get addicted to starvation. You can get addicted to purging. Now, the other thing you said is, um, you know, we are like any other person, like any other uh, sport, uh, art, where we have complex emotions and we're being judged all the time and we don't always have time to deal with those emotions, just like everybody else. And so, you know, dancers aren't particularly, you know, uh, different than anybody. They're the same. They sometimes find the way to manage their emotions is with either starving or purging. There's nothing, you know, nothing special about that. And and because they are in those situations where those two addictions are particularly functional in some scenarios, they, and they're supported um, both, you know, sort of quietly and ostensibly supported, starving's a good thing, right <laughs> um, being being unusually sin is a good thing, right okay. and so you know the culture now starts to become this invisible hand that increases the rates at which these things become acquired and maintained, so that's so. Just to summarize, dancers are people like anybody else. They have emotions that are difficult to cope with. These happen to be some ways of coping that are particularly culturally acceptable and functional. So yeah, they're more common. Um, and, and I think the, the, the place I want to go with this is that there's also a lot of healthy dancers who happen to be thin and stand in front of mirrors and really worry about their weight And they should but they're not sick about it you know they're healthy people they go have therapy you know they have friends they have a life and so it it says you know you dancers are under a particularly difficult situation but there are healthy dancers amongst you you're not all unwell there's quite a few and so Look within the strength of your art and say, "Who around me is strong. Who around me has the exact same problem I do, but is coping in a more sophisticated way. Maybe I can learn from her or I can learn from him. So you have incredible strengths within your craft of people who have who've done all of this and done it in a healthy way. So it's not like this is some hopeless, you know uh, spiral ballet dancers are going to have eating disorders and anxiety disorders. No, there, there's a lot of successful dancers out there who don't, um, you know, and, and so you have a lot of strengths amongst your peers from whom you could learn.
0: Um, as a psychiatrist, you're, um, you're getting into the biochemistry biochem- already. You were talking about how, like, um, starving and purging has the exact same sort of biochemical um, outcome, right, as other addictions, when you look at the the particles, right? Um, So do you want to talk about, can we talk about that a little bit more? Um, You mentioned raising dopamine, but we haven't talked yet about raising serotonin. So is it true that like, all addiction is related to Basically, those two things, like low dopamine and low serotonin. Is that right?
1: No. Okay, good. Correct me. (laughs) So, dopamine and serotonin are totally different molecules. Serotonin is the molecule of self soothing, and dopamine, uh, and it's also serotonin is also the molecule of self esteem, it's also uh, the molecule of joy. And dopamine is the molecule of focus, reward, satisfaction, executive function. And so Mother Nature has been very thrifty insofar as she has managed to run some very complex emotional machinery with two molecules. Um, a A lot of amazing stuff gets done in your body with those two molecules. And when they're in balance, all is well. And when they're out of balance, they have their particular um, markers. So low serotonin shows up as anxiety, depression, obsession, low (coughs) self-esteem, and low dopamine shows up as uh, difficulty focusing, addiction, uh, hyperactivity, um, compulsive behavior. So... And then there's some disorders in which both of them are abnormal. So an anxious person who uses cocaine, they're, they're anxious and they're addicted. And so they, both of those molecules are, are low. And so they happen to you know, cope the way they cope. Um, they might use a lot of um, comfort food. So comfort food raises serotonin. Cocaine raises dopamine so <laughs> a lot of twinkies and cocaine yeah. uh, or or uh, pasta <laughs> pasta and cigarettes um, whatever so the fact is that every addiction has its biological neurobiological footprint, and every mental health issue has its neurobiological footprint, and every person uh, is different so it's a uh, Very individual assessments that you need to do to find out who has what and who needs what.
0: My confusion goes further, actually, but low is the concern, right? I mean, do people have excess, besides when they have a high and they're very high in dopamine and then they crash, high levels of dopamine are not so concerning or in high levels, is that true or not true?
1: No. And so that's really important. And all of these exist on an, they all exist on a spectrum, and they can be either too low or too high. So too low dopamine, you are addicted and have ADHD, and too high dopamine, you're psychotic, too low serotonin and you're anxious, depressed, uh, obsessive, and too high serotonin, and you're manic, and you're euphoric you're invincible doing risky crazy things that are going to get you in a lot of trouble. So there's there's too high and too low and then there's just right.
0: And that's the appeal of the substances is to try to get to that homeostasis, right? Like like the the function of the substance is like your your body chemistry is low and so you're you know you have this craving to eat something to try to achieve homeostasis or yep. vice versa, yep. right?
1: Yeah. And so there are, we call them levers, levers that you pull to, uh, to um, achieve some kind of equilibrium. So you can use a certain lever to raise your serotonin. You can use a different lever to raise your dopamine. And so there are, as I was mentioning, more sophisticated, healthy ways of raising serotonin. And there are some very dysfunctional and primitive ways of raising serotonin, and so everybody uh it would behoove them to know healthy ways to balance their chemistry and that's what my book is about to the book that i'm writing is is going to be about
0: um send us the link when it's done, and we'll we'll share it um so those, those levers or levers, depending on um, when you when you use those levers, um, I'm picturing, it's almost like a sounding board, a soundboard, you know, it's like when you when you use a sophisticated lever to the right degree, that's high functioning, right? Like we all have these fluctuations, and the high functioning, sophisticated mental health individual will have a, "Mm, I feel a little, uh, I need a little of this, and they'll pick a good tool that's functional and societally acceptable and they'll use the right quantity of it and they'll bring themselves back into balance right that's right that's
1: right just like a a good ballet dancer will pull herself back into balance when she's going off in in a certain direction and and she i say she but it could be he she achieves this art because she is perfectly balanced and inside her core there's all these millions of twitches of core muscles to keep her straight and and that that's art and somebody who can manage their brain chemistry with with tiny little almost imperceptible tweaks of their internal chemistry can be in balance and and it's and a healthy person is like a perfect dancer it's it's art and so i I would say that we all strive to find healthy ways to balance our neurochemistry.
0: And I would say even it's skill, right? Because like um, one of the traps we fall into sometimes in dance is like the concept of a gift. You know, it can be a bit problematic. It's like these are skills. Like some people come to the skills more easily, but you practice turning and you practice firing the right muscles and you take a lot of time rehearsing it and failing and trying again and strategizing, right? And then eventually your body knows how to do this. And it's the same with the mental health behaviors. You know, it's not like some people, you know, they come more easily to some than others, but all people can practice making better choices until they're good at it and they have a better system of, of, of skills.
1: It's exactly that. Everybody has Libra's. Some of them are more sophisticated than others and some people are more knowledgeable about what to do um, in this situation or that situation but most of us didn't get taught that you get more Mm -hmm. teaching on how to how to do a pirouette than how to balance your brain chemistry so uh, yeah some people are lucky and they they come by it naturally they have you know good brain chemistry And some people are unlucky, unlucky, but they have learned, you know, they have read, they have seen, they have been taught, they, you know, they've experimented with different ways of getting into balance. And I I would say that everybody is always, I would think that everybody should always be trying to get better at it and, and, and be more balanced because the world's a better place when we're all balanced
0: right um better place feels better easier more happiness all of those things um should we talk a little bit more about this road that we're going down which is sort of to do with like um precipitating and predisposing and perpetuating um factors for addiction um so uh, the predisposing factors are things um, like genetics and stuff. Would Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And then the perpetuating factors are more environmental or um, yeah. cultural or behavioral. So some of the things that you talked about um, that I just want to highlight are like negative role models. So you already hinted at this in regard to eating disorders that, you know, if we have a culture... Where negative role models are um, are regarded highly, um, that can be a perpetuating factor for addiction. Yeah. And you also talked about adverse childhood trauma and PTSD. So let's linger there for a moment because there's a lot to unpick with that. Uh, dancers have higher incidences of trauma and PTSD. Right? And those are both perpetuating factors for addiction, right? Yep. And do we know? And we don't really know what that's about, right? Like you said, we don't know if people who have had trauma are drawn to these expressive art forms like dance or if um, there's trauma in our dance past. Well,
1: there's a number of factors going on here, right? So a child. Can have trauma, and then it's perpetuated by their dance teacher re-traumatizing them, or they can have no trauma as a child, and the traumatizer is the dance teacher. Um, and and you know you can have it either way, in any combination of the above. Um, but a successful dancer is successful precisely because. She can be re-traumatized and not flinch. Hmm. She's in there for the long haul. I say she, it could be he. But it's a healthy dancer would say, don't you ever talk to me like that again. Nobody talks to me like that again. Nobody talks to me like that. I'm out of here. That's a healthy person. But a person who allows themselves to be traumatized feels at home being traumatized. And so some of the best dancers, the ones who being able to withstand the most trauma, it's because that's where they came from. And nobody might ever know that. So there are role models in dance that you would want to run away from as fast as you could. But some people don't. There are experiences that you're put through, that you're probably put through in just about every you know, role that females can be in, you know, sexual harassment, that a healthy female would run from and say, I am out of here. You don't talk to me. You don't look at me. You don't touch me like that. That's not okay. But then you think about the culture of dance and how little power the dancer has and how much she or he would have to give up power that they would have to give up in order to succeed. And then you see why all of these, uh, all of these sports and disciplines, where women are categorically abused by usually by men, but not always, and they're okay with it, and it just comes with the territory. And you know, I think one, we need to acknowledge that's not okay. Two, we have to give dancers power to say to say that's not okay. And three, people who do that need to be brought to light so that they know the culture. Our society says that's not okay, and that's actually what's happening, right? The whole Me Too movement and and you know directors of dance and, and you know big famous companies getting uh, dismissed. Right, so in a way, you know, the art is moving in the right direction there's there's probably less um abuse, there's probably less trauma, there's probably less power um, less less division of power, slightly less and it, in that, in, that thing, in, any, in any case, it's moving in the right direction, and so I think. If I were to be in a position to give advice, which I'm not, I would say, keep doing what you're doing. Give young girls the power to say no and young boys the power to say no. And give teachers the societal, um, the societal uh, message that it's not okay to treat people like this, even if <laughs> you think it makes them better dancers.
0: Well, and that, I mean it's, it's a, a loop, too, with the negative role models, because I do know, I know a few dancers who have said those things and lived to tell the tale, and they are great tales, you know, the dancer who said, yeah. oh, no, thank you, I'll I'll wait for the next choreographer to come to town. Um, yeah. But for the yeah. most part, there's like a um, Darwinian, there's like an extinction, an evolution thing that happens where, you know, the dancer who says that does not survive in the field to tell the tale and the only people who survive are the ones who put up with it. And then, you know, that perpetuates the negative role models and the the culture of tolerance and all of that. Yeah.
1: And the, yeah. And the culture of secrecy and, and so, you know, you, you have to go where the momentum is and the momentum is now, that top level dance companies can't have abusive choreographers or just it's not okay anymore. You know, the people who pay the, who pay the bills uh, either are shamed into firing that person or now they have a, a good reason to fire that person. They always wanted to fire that person, <laughs> but it, 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 is, it is top down, right? So the culture is saying, this is not cool anymore then the people who pay the bill say this is not cool anymore then the boss you know gets uh, turfed and then the next person who comes in is judged to to have to be uh you know a better role model that's a good thing and so and so as the conditions for survival change then then the fittest dancers will also be healthier um
0: m- Another perpetuating factor that I am curious about is pain. Um, you know, we have this like massive opioid crisis here in North America and other places around the globe. Um, and I'm sure those opi- opioid addictions come about for a number of reasons, but they can come come about from a, a genuine pain, right? Somebody has a back pain, they use course, these drugs, course. and then they're highly addictive, right? So, um, the The amount of pain that, that dancers, and particularly ballet dancers, are enduring, I would imagine, is a perpetuating factor for addiction. Yeah. Um, but then you also said some interesting things about um, how pain can also sort of like be symptomatic of some of these imbalances yeah. that then cause addiction. So could you explain that a little bit more? So pain
1: has two sides, right? The pain inflicter and the pain tolerance. So somebody can take an incredible amount of pain and tolerate it. And somebody can have the teeniest, tiniest little bit of discomfort and be screaming in agony. (laughs) Right? So the analogy that I use is like putting uh, a heavy box on a piece of ice. Okay? Some people can have a massive chest of iron, and that ice is so thick that that chest will not fall through the ice. And some people, you could put a sock on the ice, and it would break through the ice. That's how thin that person's pain tolerance is. So ice is the pain tolerance, and the chest or the the weight on top of the ice is the pain. And so... You can look at it from both ways. Ballet dancers put themselves into a lot of pain. They purposefully put themselves into a lot of pain. And so, you know, they may need to have addictive pain medication, which because they're susceptible for X, Y, Z predisposing reasons, now they get addicted to it. So that's problem number one. Or you have a ballet dancer who's great, she gets injured, but she's also very anxious, and she's got a history of trauma and depression, and she can't tolerate the pain. She has this teeny tiny little injury, and she can't tolerate the pain. And so that's the other side of it, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's that I am susceptible to not tolerating pain because I have other mental health problems. And as a dancer, I get hurt a lot. And those you'll never see those those dancers because they never make it to the top level.
0: Right. Right? They're,
1: the one, they're the ones who quit, you know, in the first year. I can't do this. It hurts. Well, what are you talking about? Jane can do it. She's, she's not in pain. Oh, my legs are sore. Right? So, so those kids just never make it. Um, but you can have a, a dancer who's very successful and then has a sudden depression. And all of a sudden, I keep saying she, but it could be he. All of a sudden, he can't take the pain anymore. And you're like, what do you mean? How could this spectacular dancer who's been able to put up with all these injuries all of a sudden now um, burn out? Well, that's what happens. All of a sudden, the ice got thinner and this person can't tolerate the pain anymore and they have a career-ending injury.
0: I am seeing so much of that right now. I have, I'm hearing so many people with back pain and there are a lot of like mechanical reasons for it you know we've been dancing in these tiny rooms on these weird floors and all of that but it's also just seems so much like uh stress and depression and anxiety surrounding this whole pandemic and then it's manifesting yep. in these physical ways yeah um and go ahead and we we're all suffering Ugh dancers
1: who can't dance they the dance was their medication and now they can't dance or 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 dancers who are very social but now they have to you know they have to train in their garage instead of seeing all their girlfriends or boyfriends and
0: and that whole fun
1: part about being a dancer a lot of that fun has been taken away
0: totally um you mentioned the the catastrophic injury um Yep. And I, let's see, there's, in dance science, again, we we sometimes talk about, like, you know, there's this issue, and we should care about it because dancers get injured, or dancers get injured, so we we should be doing this other form of training, or, you know, all of these things. And, um, yeah, there are these high injury incidents, um, but the, the data is, there are some problematic there are some problematic components about the data and also I just don't always buy into this thing that injury is so horrible I just I've seen people grow so much in injury learn so much um you know cultivate new skills during time away from dance um and we see people who have catastrophic physical injuries but then they go on and um you know, they become doctors, actually, a lot of them and, and other other professionals (laughs) of other kinds. Um, And so I was, you know, you were linking the addiction rates with injury and saying how there's there's this connection here that we should consider. But then you got into something that I really, uh, was interested in, which, which is this idea of moral injury and identity injury, mm. um, identity yeah. injury in particular for dance, because um, you described identi- identity injury as perhaps the most enduring injury of all, and I completely agree with that because you know you can you can have a major you know labral tear that takes you out of ballet and still be a really good doctor, but if you have this moral injury that is affecting your self-perception and the way you operate in the world, you are going to take that with you to medical school and not succeed there or take that with you into your yeah. new job and, yeah. and, and face it over and over again. So could you yeah. explain more about what identity injury is?
1: So identity injury is that you have this belief about who you are and what you are. And that gets damaged through um, losing your identity. So I, I feel good about myself. I'm fit. I'm healthy. I'm attractive. Uh, people love me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an entertainer. Um, you know, people write about me. And then I get injured or I get addicted. And then I'm nobody. My my identity was taken away from me. I was a special person. And now I'm a has-been. That's, that's the worst injury of all. It's the thing that we, we hold closest to us is, is who we are, our, our, our worldview, our self-concept. And when that gets taken away from us for whatever reason, it's, it's the biggest injury of all it's It's worse than any physical injury
0: and you also talked about moral injury, which I then um googled quite a bit because it's really fascinating, which has <laughs> to do with um has has to do with needing to deliver um either information or present yourself in a way that is contrary to your sort of moral ethical code. is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And you you explained um the study of ER doctors um and yeah, do you think dancers are also suffering from moral injury? For
1: sure. You know, think about think about the dancer uh who has to sleep with the choreographer mm-hmm. to get the the lead role and you know, she comes from a good family where nobody ever in her entire generation of generations of generations of ancestors has ever sold their body to get a favor, ever. And so now this, I'm going to let's call it a, let's say young man comes from this, you know, very healthy, long standing family, great moral code, you know great-great-grandfather, you know, was this high standing, had had this high social status, and here I am, the son of this person, and I've lowered myself to this level. I have compromised my morals to this level so that I can be, you know, the uh, principal dancer. Think about the injury to that person's moral um, fiber, yeah think of how that has been shredded and and dissolved and bleached that fabric in order to get ahead that's that's the sort of thing that people take to their grave no one will ever know that that happened they're so ashamed of it and and the rest of their life is in tatters because they're holding the secret so like Never mind a torn Achilles. Right.
0: PT can help with that in six weeks, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. This is a real injury. And, you know, when you do what I do, you hear these stories. And people say, people say, I've never told anybody this in my whole life. And then you're like, wow. Well, I'm glad you told me. You feel better for telling me? Yes, I do. Because... You know, taking that to your grave—that's what causes—that's what causes cancer.
0: Yeah,
1: and holding a and secret like that, and, and all—like, think about it. Who do you think is dying in these back alleys of fentanyl poisoning? Not people who are surprised that they—they overdosed. People who actually don't care if they overdose. And what do you think the injury is? that people are so injured by that they don't care if they die something like this
0: right and so even bear, bearing witness to the abuses that happen or you know the exactly. injust, you know the injustices of like if even if you're not the person who slept with the choreographer knowing that that's how your career operates you know yeah just yeah. knowing it can that be the character. And, standing by and continuing on
1: you are you are guilty by being complicit Mm -hmm. and you know some people brush that off that doesn't enter into their consciousness and some people suffer greatly and you don't have to be the one you could just be the one who knows about it that's called vicarious moral injury Um. It's just like, you don't have to be the one who was, who was raped, but you knew about it and you didn't do anything about it. Yeah. So, you know, we live difficult lives and a lot of it is
0: unexamined.
1: And, uh, and dance is a very, uh, is an area which is- Shrouded. Rich, shrouded in trauma and drama, but yet beautiful nonetheless. And there's a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, people like you who are thinking about it and reading about it and talking about it, you, you are gonna, you are going to be the, the wave, the first wave that, you know, cleanses this uh, and brings, you know, it, there's no reason it can't be all art and all beauty. It doesn't have to be shrouded in anything. And, and that's the process. And it, you know, it starts today. This is a beautiful thing, and and we can make it more beautiful every day in the way we treat each other, and 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 the way we we police our our discipline. We can make it more beautiful every day.
0: I've, I've taken to saying lately that it's changing in pockets. You know, there are these yeah. places yeah. it is changing. Um, you know, in conclusion, you you mentioned in your I Adam's lecture at the very beginning, you said. dance dance is a healthy vocation with evolutionary advantage and dancers have strength and courage and resiliency and also higher incidence of many mental health conditions. And (laughs) dance culture is not always health promoting. Um, So along the lines of what you've said, um, do you want to close with any, anything more that sort of speaks to this duality? Yeah, I mean, It's
1: like in any vocation, in any discipline, in any craft, there's the good and the bad. Uh, There's the beauty and the beast. Um, And I think there is goodness in all of them. And our job is to find the goodness, to praise the goodness, and to root out the badness um, and, and reward people for doing the right thing. You know, when you change the reward structure, you change things and so rewarding choreographers for doing the right thing and rewarding dancers and rewarding dance companies for doing the right thing. Don't just expect them to know what the right thing is. Reward them for doing the right thing and then you will change the drivers and, and you will keep more of the beauty and, and encourage less of the beast. You have it. You have the power.
0: Thank you so much Antonio McConaughey. Um, this has been really illuminating. I'm, I'm just so glad that you are talking about this. Um, I really haven't heard many people talk about this important topic um, as much as it is critical <laughs> to survival and health in dance. So thank you.
1: Well, I've been the recipient of a lot of pleasure secondary to seeing beautiful dance through my wife. And I have a soft spot in my heart for all of you hardworking dancers. So it's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Great. Thank you. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancehall Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzi, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to DanceWell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support, and lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcastgmail.com. At Bye!